So we just love to open the Bible and see what we can learn from it. And in that sense, this, this week is no different for us. Um, and one of the things I love about our church is that we have a bunch of people at the heart of it who, who love God, learning to love God more and more, learning to make his love known more and more. And alongside us, as, as we do that, we have people who are kind of looking in on faith, who are asking the big questions of life, who are exploring faith and spirituality. And I love that about our church. And so we love to do kind of both. And I recognize for many of us here this morning, there'll be a whole kind of range of worldviews whole kind of range of views on faith and life and Christianity and things. But my, my prayer, and I, I think my conviction really is that as we just open the Bible together for these few minutes, um, it can speak to all of us. It really can. My prayer and conviction is that the love of God can be made known to all of us wherever we're at this morning as I just open up something of what his word says. Um, and what we're going to see this morning, I think, is deeply relevant to all of us. Because all of us, I think wherever we're at this morning, whatever our worldview or life stage or experience might be, I'm guessing all of us have had, are having, or will have moments where we need to consider how to respond to somebody who's harmed us. All of us have had, might be having, or will have a moment when we have to consider how am I going to respond to somebody who has in some way harmed me, emotionally, financially, physically, however it might be. And how we respond to those moments is a big deal, isn't it? How we respond to those moments of being harmed or being the victims of injustice is a huge deal for us. In some ways, it can set the trajectory for the rest of our lives, how we respond to those moments. And that's the question we're going to look at this morning, because it's the question that comes up in the the text that we have come to this morning in in our series. Um, you've already met, if you're new, you've already met uh, Mike and Katie and Jason and Vicky and myself and Caroline. And uh, I was reminded of back in October, I was at Jason's house uh, for like a churchy leaders meeting thing. And what you need to know about Jason and I is that we used to be housemates before um, our wives sorted us out and got us civilized. We were um, less than civilized housemates in our bachelor days and we lived in the same house that Jason and his family now live in. So whenever I go around now, I always have sort of certain you know, memories come flooding back of those, those good old days. And one of the other things you need to know about our time as housemates is that we had very different views on uh, heating. Um, and me, being the slightly soft southerner that I am, I like the heating to be nice and well turned up. Jason, being the hardy Welshman, son of a miner that he is, had no need, it seemed to me, for any heating whatsoever. Anyway, this particular evening, back in October, we arrived, and I could see that Jason had arranged the meeting to be in the dining room. I was like, oh... It's a bit chilly in here, isn't it? And I look back on this very shamefully. Incredibly presumptuously, I thought, tell you what, we shouldn't meet in there. We should go meet in the living room. I'll turn the heater on. It'll be nice and cozy. Much better place to meet than in the the living room. It's not even my house anymore. Anyway, so I did that. Went into the living room, turned the gas fire on, and started to beckon people through. And as people came through, people were like, funny smell. And as Jason came through, his face just went completely white. He's like, mate, what are you doing? Why are you turning the gas fire on? We've got a gas leak. We're not using that fire. And sure enough, you could start to smell that horrible smell of gas just emanating through, uh, through the house. I was like, oh, it's super awkward. And we sort of fled back into the living room. I was like, Jason, I'm really sorry. And smell was there. And Vicky was eight months pregnant at the time. So it was less than ideal timing to be leaking noxious fumes through the house. It was very embarrassing. And I hope I was suitably apologetic. And the next day, I just uh, texted him. I said, mate, I'm really sorry about the gas fire thing. Is, is, is everything okay? Is the smell gone? Was Victoria okay? And in his own typical fashion, quick as a flash, he texted me back just one line saying, we've checked into a hotel. <laughs> At which point, <laughs> I was beginning to panic, and he very cunningly let me have a few minutes of... 
don't think that would have happened, but you never quite know, before the next text came through saying, don't worry, only joking, all is fine. <laughs> Suitably breathing a large sigh of relief. But even then I'm thinking, am I, am I forgiven? Because that was pretty rubbish of me, just to come take over someone's house. Am I sort of forgiven? How is he going to respond to my unwitting attempts to harm him and his family? A few weeks later, all three of these little girls had been born, and Jason and Vicky very kindly invited all of us over. We had a lovely afternoon together celebrating these three little girls. And to come back into their home, you don't understand, I, I stayed well clear of any electrical or gas appliances, but to be welcomed back into the home is very clear to me that I was forgiven. I was back in the Stocks' home. All was well. Forgiveness is a good thing. That's a kind of light example, but I knew, albeit quietly, I knew that I was forgiven. And the power of forgiveness in that particular moment is multiple, isn't it? In our instance, it preserves friendship. Forgiveness can have the power to preserve friendship, and it did for us. And as I say, we're just in a series of talks at the moment. We have been since September, and the series is called Sketches. It's based on a book called 1 Samuel in the Old Testament of the Bible. And the central figure in 1 Samuel is a guy called David. You may have heard of him, of David and Goliath fame. And he faces exactly the same issue that Jason faced, but on a far more dramatic scale. And he may face, and you may face, issues perhaps in between his drama and Jason's drama. So if you're new to the Bible, let me just set the scene for you. 1 Samuel is set in about 1,000 BC. David, he of Goliath, fame is the central character. And basically, David has been chosen to be the next king. So the current king, Saul, is pretty unhappy about that, to put it mildly. And Saul becomes eaten up with jealousy and envy and bitterness at the prospect of his throne being taken away and being seized by David. Kind of Game of Thrones stuff, the rivalry and the bitterness and the envy starts to kick in. David maintains his innocence, but despite that, David has no choice but to flee. So he becomes like a fugitive, an outlaw, such as Saul's um, attempt and passion to kill him. And this morning, we join the story in chapter 26. And what's happened is that Saul has received some intelligence through his intelligence process, and he's discovered where David is currently hiding out. So he takes his 3,000 men to try and eliminate David, bring an end to this whole thing. David also receives some intelligence and works out where Saul has set up camp for the night nearby. So David and his nephew, Abishai, who I assume must have been more of an older teenager, they steal down stealthily, you can steal stealthily, but they make their way down to the perimeter of the camp. And what befalls them is fascinating because they discover that the whole of the camp, all 3,000 men, are fast asleep, including all the guards, deep, deep sleep. And they see that in the center of the camp, as you'd expect in the ancient world of warfare, there's Saul asleep under the stars with his spear beside his head, as you'd expect in case he is attacked. At which point, Abishai realizes this this is the moment. Saul is just ripe for the taking. He's fast asleep, his own spears by his head. I, we could just bring an end to all of this suffering and injustice in a moment, and the throne would be David's. It's kind of like those scenes in the movie when the good guy and the bad guy are fighting on some high, you know, unfeasibly high tower, and they're fighting on the edge of the, or they get, get right to the edge, and the bad guy's teetering on the edge, and the good guy's about to punch him or push him off, and we're all of us, including you, are wishing and waiting for what? The bad guy to topple off and fall down to his death. I know you are, all of us are. We all want the bad guy to topple down off the top of the building. We want the good guy to push him off. And that's the same moment here that Abishai experiences. And Abishai just says in verse 8, I think what most people would probably say, at least in some way, Abishai says, verse 8, should come on the screen behind me in a few moments, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. 
Please, Abishai says, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. Meaning, I won't miss. I only need one chance to take this guy out. Now, back into 27, 2018, we might not have many experience, any opportunities to take a spear and plunge it into the heart of people who've harmed us, I assume. But don't just don't separate yourself too quickly from the moment that Abishai experiences 3,000 years ago. Because the point is, he and David have got a choice. How do we respond to somebody who has harmed us? And that is something that is relevant to all of us. Maybe right now in these moments, this week perhaps, there might be a live issue for you. I'm, I'm suggesting to you that the way in which we respond to people harming us is enormous in setting the trajectory of our lives. And David responds remarkably. Verse nine, but David said to Abishai, don't destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down to battle and perish, but the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. So instead, David and Abishai do steal up the center of the camp. They just take Saul's spear and a jug of water, and they retreat to a safe distance on a hilltop but close enough to be able to call out and have a kind of shouted conversation. So when the camp wakes, uh, David calls out. He wants a conversation with Saul. Verse 17, Saul recognized David's voice and said, is this your voice, David? And David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O King. And he said, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Jump forward to verse 21, if you're following it in your Bibles. Verse 21, Saul says, I've sinned. Return, my son David, for I will do no more harm to you, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. I've acted foolishly. I've made a great mistake. And David answered and said, here's the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it, i.e., I'm not going to come and return to you. But he says, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. And then Saul said to David, blessed be you, my son, David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. So Saul is as bad a guy as you can get. It's clear. His guilt is clear. And David is the good guy in this. And yet David doesn't do what I want him to do in the movie scene and push Saul over the edge. In fact, David doesn't even respond in a vengeful way. Somehow, David finds the resources not just to avoid violence and vengeance, but to engage in something approaching forgiveness and reconciliation. And my question is, where did he get the power for that? And so therefore, the big idea in these remaining few minutes we have together is this. I want to put it to you, or more importantly, I think the Bible puts it to you, that the power to forgive is the resource that you need for a flourishing life. The power to forgive is the resource that you need for a flourishing life. Let's see whether that stacks up, and I'll do so just over three quick headings. The, flourish, the flourishing forgiveness brings, the cost forgiveness entails, and thirdly, the power forgiveness requires. The flourishing it brings, the cost it entails, the power that it needs. Number one, the flourishing forgiveness brings. You see, Saul does more, sorry, David does more than simply not engage in violence and vengeance with Saul and walk away. 
but that would have been commendable. He actually goes towards Saul. Did you notice that? Not, not physically, physically he goes away. But emotionally, he goes towards Saul. Did you pick it up? He, he, constructs, he, he constructs a conversation with Saul from a safe distance, wisely. Secondly, he shows Saul honor and respect, calls him my lord, my king, three times. Thirdly, he reasons with him. He shows Saul how his actions have been destructive, unjust, debilitating. And fourthly, and perhaps most remarkably, he bestows value on Saul, this person that's trying to kill him unjustly. David says, your life is precious. And the result of that is that he, rather than neutralizing Saul or walking away, he kind of wins him. He wins him. Saul says, I've acted foolishly. I've made a great mistake. Verse 24, 21, sorry. He says, blessed be you, my son David. Verse 25. There's a transformation in their relationship due to forgiveness. Now, tragically, to be honest with you about the rest of the story, it doesn't last. Saul's repentance, Saul's change doesn't last. The Bible's not a fairy tale. It's really happy to be honest about the messiness of human relationships and people. So it doesn't last. But in the moment, David's forgiveness causes a remarkable transformation in relationships. And it can for us too. That's the first way it brings about human flourishing. Forgiveness transforms human relationships. It's such an intense form of love that it doesn't just result in a neutral disposition towards someone. We don't just draw a line between them. Forgiveness is such an intense form of love. It takes us towards the person in the desire to see healing and restoration, to see them transformed. How are you doing with that? How are you doing with responding to someone's harm, injustice, by somehow finding the resources to go towards them to see healing and transformation and change. Now, it's not about naivety. I'll come to that later on. So we're not talking about being naive or, by, or diluting injustice. But forgiveness has an extraordinary power if we let it. Secondly, forgiveness has the power to put you on the path to greatness. It's a big claim. What do, what do I mean by that? Well, I used to be a history teacher in a, a few years ago, and one of the courses that I loved teaching the most, A-level course, uh, was American Civil Rights, Martin Luther King, 1950s, 1960s, and all that. I used to love teaching it. Kids, kids uh, I think, enjoyed learning it, but I loved teaching it. And one of the things that I, always struck me about Martin Luther King was not just that he refused to engage in violence, though he did, and I don't know how he did, given the provocation that he was under. What struck me even more was that he engaged in forgiveness, He went further. Martin Luther King once said this, forgiveness is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. Forgiveness is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. See, Martin Luther King wasn't only interested in exposing the evils of racial segregation through a policy of nonviolence, though he was, and he did, and thank goodness he did. He was also interested in seeing healing in seeing unity, in seeing transformation, in seeing change to his nation, in in beginning, as he says, a new relationship, a new beginning of black and white coming together. And to do that, he knew he and many of us had to forgive over and over and over and over again. And I think because he did, because he forgived, you could say in some way, his purpose, his destiny, his greatness, was preserved. His path to greatness was preserved. You know, imagine if King had become bitter. 
he might have maintained a non-violent approach. Imagine if, in, if inside he'd become bitter, cynical. There's no way he would have achieved half of what he achieved simply through non-violence. It was his desire to go towards harm and injustice and through forgiveness to see healing and reconciliation and transformation that changed the path of a nation. Likewise with, um, likewise with David. If David had killed Saul, it would have derailed David's life. He would have just become like Saul, another promising king derailed by bitterness, envy, violence, and so on. Instead, through forgiveness, David goes on to become the greatest king Israel ever had. You see, unforgiveness has genuinely has the power to derail a person's life. I think we know that when we see people who are chewed up with unforgiveness and bitterness. They're not on the path to greatness, are they? Psychologists are agreed with this. I was reading in Psychology Today, an article in 2014 simply says this, study after study has suggested that being unable to forgive past wrongs can wreak havoc on our mental and, phys- on our mental and physical health. Unforgiveness can derail a person's life. But I'm suggesting to you that forgiveness can, can save a person's life. Not just the person who receives the forgiveness, but the person who gives it. It can set you on the path towards greatness. It can make you the kind of person you were supposed to be. It can form and cultivate a character of greatness. It has that kind of power for human flourishing. At which point you might say, okay, but I'm, I'm no David, the great king of Israel. I'm certainly no Martin Luther King key figure of the 20th century? No, and, and nor am I. But this is kind of like the, the bottom line of Christianity, I suppose, something that we're passionate about in this church, as Becca's already been explaining. The bottom line is that God loves you. You're loved. And he has a plan for your life. And the Bible teaches us that he made you in his image, i.e. like him, in order to reflect his greatness to the world around us. That, according to Christianity, is our purpose for being, to express and reflect and demonstrate the greatness of God. And when you respond to the love of God and you step into, a, a, as it were, a love relationship with God, he then begins an amazing transaction of healing and mending. He begins to heal and to mend all the brokenness that we all carry, no matter how much we might try to just quietly mask it, his love begins to heal all the pain that, has, that we've received, that's been done to us, no matter how much we might try to deny it. And he also begins to heal and forgive all the harm that we've done to others, no matter how much we might try and justify it. All of that becomes forgiven and healed and the original image becomes restored. And when you become a Christian, or when you are a Christian, you step into an extraordinary promise that God made. And God promises every person who comes into that love relationship with him that he will, bit by bit, through all the ups and downs and messy moments and painful moments of life, in fact, often, it's often mainly through those moments, he promises that he will turn you more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ, who is the greatest person ever lived. Even some of the most skeptical people who have all kinds of different worldviews to Christianity would say, Jesus Christ is at least up there with one of the greatest people that ever lived. And the promise that God makes to you when you step into a love relationship with him is that he will begin to turn you into someone like Jesus. Ironically, partly through forgiveness. That's part of the transaction that happens when we respond to his love. 
And then he begins to shape us and change us into the likeness of Jesus, Jesus Christ, who somehow had the capacity and the power to forgive his enemies. We start to have that kind of power and resource to forgive like him. So unforgiveness can derail our life because it separates us from God. And even if we step into that relationship with God, unforgiveness can derail us from becoming like Jesus, the greatest forgiver there ever was, who transformed the world. But we need to be realistic. If I was just to stop here, we, would just be, we wouldn't be in the real world yet. Because as much as forgiveness carries great potential, as I hope I've tried to explain, it comes at a cost. Forgiveness stings. Forgiveness brings pain. That's the second point, the cost forgiveness entails. So this is kind of a bit of a sidebar. Imagine for a moment that tomorrow you go out and buy the nicest, shiniest, best car that you can buy. I've never driven much more than a Renault, so I don't know much about cars. But you car buffs, like, can someone just give me an example? If money was no object, what amazing, like, give me an example of an amazing car that you'd go out and buy tomorrow. Bentley a what? Bentley Continental. A Bentley Continental. How much do those things retail at? Okay, so imagine you have gone out and you have purchased yourself a Bentley Continental. I actually know what a Bentley is, so I vaguely know the illustration I'm about to give. Okay, so you've bought this amazing car. Some of you have gone to a very happy place in your mind just now, but come on, back in the room. You've bought this incredible car, and the following day I phone you up and say, can I, let's like I borrow your car, could you? Could I? And rather foolishly, you, you think I'm a trustworthy person, so you, you agree to lend me your car. So I take your Bentley, um, what's it called? Bentley Continental, out for a spin. Following day, or the later that day, you get a phone call to me. Hi. Um, so, I was running a bit late, and um, I just sort of pulled out of a junction too quickly, and I, I've, I've caused a crash. I've crashed your car, your Bentley Continental. And you're a nice person, so you asked me how I am. But deep down, what you care about is the car. And I say, I'm, I'm so sorry, I think, I think the Bentley's a write-off. At which point, some of you are like, genuinely visibly angry. I can actually see all those of you who love cars. I can't bear this moment. But at which point, someone has to pay. What do I mean by that? Well, either I pay, I say, I'll pay, and you say, fine. Literally, I'll pay. Or you say, Philip, I, I forgive you. In which case, you pay <laughs> through higher insurance premiums, through not having a car for a while, but it is not a neutral transaction. One way or the other, one of us has to pay. That's the nature of when harm is done, I guess. You see, with Saul and David back in 1000 uh, BC, Saul has wronged David terribly. If you've been here through the series, you'll know the ways in which he's wronged David. So either Saul pays with a spear through the heart, or David pays. And David does choose to pay. He mustn't divorce herself from the emotion of the moment. David has to take time to talk with his persecutor, to try and reason with him, to try and win him, persuade him, even honors him, even bestows value on his life. That must have been like emotional agony. Someone has to pay either way. I was reading an essay this week that someone wrote on forgiveness. And this is what this, this, uh, this guy said. He wrote this. Once I was engaged to a young woman who changed her mind. I forgave her, but I could only forgive her in small sums over a year. 
Done when I spoke to her and refrained from rehashing the past. Done whenever I renounced jealousy and self-pity when seeing her with another man. Done when I praised her to others when I really wanted to slice away her reputation. Those were the payments of forgiveness. That guy realized someone has to pay. Either she paid or he made her pay by slicing reputation up, by criticizing her to others, by making her rehashing the past, by, by damaging her future relationships. Either she paid or he paid. And he chose to pay. And slowly he was free, he says. Slowly he walked free. Bit by bit, painful moment, painful moment. Forgiveness has the power to set the forgiver free. That's the kind of flourishing it can bring, let alone the person that receives the forgiveness. That's why I put it to you this morning that the, having the power to forgive is the resource that you need to live a free and flourishing life. Now, just before I go any further, I want to be clear on something. I hinted at it before. Forgiveness of those that harm us or uh, any way have caused us pain, forgiveness has nothing to do with naivety and it has nothing to do with diluting injustice or wrongdoing. It's not what it's about. And actually, David, in the, in the ancient world, in the Bible, gives us a very sophisticated way of going about forgiveness and reconciliation. I don't know whether you noticed it in the, in the passages before. First of all, David found a safe spot to talk with Saul. You notice that? Went to a hilltop. There's a gap between them. Very wise, very realistic, very sensible. Secondly, he does not excuse Saul's evil. Quite the opposite. David pointed it out very bluntly and pointed out his own innocence in the matter. So there's no diluting of things. Thirdly, David does not ignore the need that we all feel for justice. Again, you might have picked up what David said. He said very pointedly, there is a judge who will hold Saul to account for all that he's done, but it's not me, it's God. So he's very clear, justice needs to be done. And fourthly, again, he's very realistic. Remember, you notice Saul asked David to return, and David says, no, and off he goes. He's realistic, he's wise. I think... You know, some of you, we could think the Bible's just ancient text, ancient world, backward people. It's a very sophisticated way of engaging in a transformative process of forgiveness and reconciliation. So I'm not compelling you to go and put yourself in harm's way or to be naive or to dilute the very necessary reality of justice at all. Nonetheless, David has found within himself a power to forgive that transforms a relationship, albeit temporarily, and sets him out on a path to greatness. So I hope you've seen so far, it's got huge power and it comes at a huge cost. So where do you get the power to do it? Because then about you, I don't just magically find the emotional resources to forgive someone that's harmed me. Maybe you do, but I haven't got those kind of emotional, psychological, spiritual resources. Where does David get his from? I think the clue where he gets his from will help us to land as to where we can get ours from. I think there were two hints in the text as to where David finds the power to do what he did. By the way, David is not a perfect person. Read the rest of 2 Samuel. You're dealing with a very, very up and down, vulnerable, at times violent, sinful, fragmented guy. So we're not trying to just put him on a pedestal. This is messy stuff. But in this moment, he finds the power and the resources. Where? Well, verse 10, 
He said to Abishai, his enthusiastic nephew, can't wait to plunge a spear through Saul. He said to him, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. In other words, David's saying, I can forgive because I know there is a God who upholds justice. That's really important. David can forgive because he's come to a place where he believes, and it would tally with the Christian worldview, he believes that ultimately only God has both the wisdom to know what someone deserves and only God has the right to give that person what they deserve. And settling in that sobering knowledge releases him to forgive, knowing justice will not be denied. Second clue that we see that gives David the power to forgive is in verse 18. David very calmly protests his innocence. He says, what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. And he goes on to explain the other issues. But in those few words, if it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. There is a hint that David is saying, listen, Saul, I'm pretty sure I'm innocent here. But I may not be. I, I may be culpable. What's David doing? He's acknowledging the possibility that he too might need forgiveness. He's aware of his own need for forgiveness. You put those two things together. You know that God is God who upholds justice, that it doesn't get denied or lost. And that because all of us carry our own brokenness, our own mess, as much as the harm we receive, we've also given harm to others. When we just settle on that, I would suggest to you, indisputable fact, when we're honest, we recognize I I'm too am in need of forgiveness as well. Because David gets that, it gives him the power to forgive. He's humbled that he's not a perfect person and he also is culpable in the eyes of God. And he's empowered because he knows that God is God of justice. As a result, he steps into an extraordinary moment of forgiveness and reconciliation. How are you doing with this? Whatever your worldview might be this morning, how are you doing at responding to harm, not just by neutralizing it with non-violence or non-vengeance, but actually stepping into a dynamic which costs an awful lot, but can be the path to your greatness and the other person's freedom. I know there are people I need to forgive. Even this week, I had an experience. I just I had to make a decision. It costs me something, only small, but it's costly. I'm not standing here saying, I, I just move through life in a bubble. All of us have these moments where we experience some degree of harm, and some of you will have experienced things I would have no idea about things that will be deeply painful. And right now I'm touching perhaps one of the most precious raw nerves that you have. But I put it to you that being empowered to forgive will put you on a path to greatness. And I also put it to you that not being able to forgive, unforgiveness could well derail your life. So where do you get the power from? You see, like I said before, David... The point of this story, and if you've been here at King's Church, you should, I hope you know this by now. I've said it over and over again, week after week. The point of this story is not to say, look at David and try and be like him. Two reasons. One, that's exhausting. It's just moral behavior modification. 
two, David was the most valuable, vulnerable, broken, messed up person you could wish to imagine later on in his life. But it's not about just aspiring to be like him. The point of the Old Testament, the point of someone like David, the point of every uh, promising character in the Bible is they point us towards the only perfect character there is. David's a good king, but a messy king. He points us towards the only perfect king there is. The parallels with Jesus, week after week, we see are wonderful. Jesus Christ actually came from the same family line as David. God was knitting a story together. And Jesus was also driven into the wilderness like David. Rejected, scorned. Jesus, we're told, had nowhere to lay his head. He knew loneliness and wilderness and rejection. We're told that he too, like David, when he was reviled, he did not revile back. And we're told that Jesus died forgiving his enemies, people that actually were killing him. David risked his life, Jesus gave his life. Forgiveness is hard, I hope we've agreed on that, if nothing else. If the Christian worldview is true, Jesus absorbed all of the forgiveness, well, Jesus absorbed all of the sin and sorrow and shame and guilt of the entire human race upon himself. What must that have been like? In order to come out the other side from death to life to award you the results of it. Forgiveness and flourishing life. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves you. That he absorbed all of human sin, evil, and sorrow. So that you might know forgiveness and then be on the path towards being somebody great who can reflect this same greatness of God to other people. That's why we exist as a church, to help people know Jesus and then to make Jesus known to others. In other words, to help people know the love of God and then to express the love of God to others. That's our raison d'etre for being here in Kingston. So I wonder how you wish to respond. We're gonna close in a moment. And at Kings, we just always believe that when, when God is speaking through his word, through his Bible, not through fallible people like me, but through the Bible, it's, it makes sense to respond. And so in a moment, we're just going to respond in a really simple way. I'm going to sing one song, which will involve us standing. And when we stand before we sing, I'm just going to ask anyone who wishes for me to just pray for them in response just to raise their hand. And I think there are three possible ways that you might want to respond by raising your hand and receiving prayer. One is, you know you need to forgive you've probably known it since I started talking. And you also know that it costs. And it's messy. And it's painful. And like David, it might not result in everything being wrapped up nicely. If the band could come out, that'd be great. Thank you, George. So the first person you might want to raise their hand is you just say, do you know what? I need the power to forgive. All I'm going to do is just pray that God would do that. That he'd remind you of what he's done for you. That his grace would fall upon you that he'd give you the wisdom and you'd know how much you're loved by him and therefore be able to express that love to others. And who knows what transformation your forgiveness could bring? Who knows what family relationships could be healed? What workplace dynamics could change in a moment? What marriages could be lit up with life? The power forgiveness has. I'd love to pray for you in a moment. Second person that might want to raise their hand would be just to say, you know, I, I want to receive the forgiveness of God afresh. I know that like David, there's a possibility that I might have caused harm to others. Now me just praying doesn't mean it's all over. There might be all kinds of ways you need to take 
recompense for that, to speak to people. I don't know what it is. You do. I'm not saying just me praying means that there's nothing more to be done. But you might as well raise your hand and say, would you please pray for me that I might receive the forgiveness of God? And then thirdly, as every week here at King's, we are people amongst us who are just looking in, who don't agree with all that we believe, who are asking questions, who are expressing doubts and struggles. I love that about our church. And every week I want to give you the opportunity to respond to what you've heard, either by saying, I'm not sure, but I'd like to take a step forward. If God is real and he loves me and he promises to draw near to me, I'm going to put my hand up and take a step closer to drawing near to him. I want to give you the opportunity to raise your hand so I can pray for you, pray for you, pray for you as well. Does that make sense? Shall we stand? And if none of those apply to you, and you want to sing, or not sing, or listen, or kneel, or grab a person next to you, all of those things are fine as well. Can I ask you whether you're new to church or not? Can I ask you to close your eyes? Just makes it a, a sensible, sensitive moment for all of us. So just the first people, if, just, if you think, do you know what? I know I want to step in to this place of forgiving someone. I know it's hard. I need help. Just raise your hand so I can pray for you. That would be brilliant. Thank you. Well done. Takes guts. Well done. Secondly, let's keep our eyes closed. It's private. If you think, do you know what? There's a place for me to receive forgiveness. And it starts with God. And it may well continue from others. If you want to receive the forgiveness of God for a fresh time or the very first time, just also please raise your hand as well. Join in with us. Thank you. And then thirdly, if you're in that category of looking in, wondering about faith, and you think, wow, I've got my questions still, but I would love to take a step forward that I might encounter this God of love, grace, forgiveness, who holds the key to a flourishing life, Putting your hand up would be a great way of symbolizing that desire. So just raise your hand and join in with us now. Let's keep our hands up. Brilliant. Okay, I'm just going to pray, and then we'll sing this final song together. Lord God, thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for opportunity to celebrate. Thank you for opportunity to do community with a bunch of people who've got all kinds of different views and ideas about life. Thank you for the, the joy of family and friendship. Thank you that you speak to us. Thank you that you have made it possible for us to be forgiven and for us in turn to engage with this world and demonstrate radical, transforming relationships and forgiveness. So I just pray for those that want to step into a place of forgiving, would you help them, God? Would you so inspire them with the wonder of the gospel, the love that's been made known to them? Would they seize hold of your Holy Spirit and step into the place of forgiving by your power? And as a result, we just speak blessing and freedom and flourishing and healing and unity in ways that I don't know, but you do. And secondly, I pray for those who feel there's harm they've done to others in whatever way and there's forgiveness to be received. God, in your mercy right now, I know you see our hearts where you see genuine, repentant hearts, would you come and forgive right now? Heal in a moment. Just bring the wonderful grace of your love poured into hearts. And would you then empower and give wisdom to those people to know how to mend whatever harm has been done. And thirdly, I pray for anyone who would say, I'm not a Christian, 
but I want to step forward and find out more. I want to know God more. I want to find out whether this thing stacks up. Loving God, would you do what you always do and draw near in response? I pray these things, Jesus, in your mighty, wonderful, beautiful name. Amen.